Thank you for listening to this Miller Time Media Podcast. This interview took place during our Miller Time Live radio program. For information on the program, you can visit our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. You can also find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms by searching Miller Time Media. If you do not find us on your favorite podcast platform, not to fear, just send us an email and we'll get it done for you, Radio at outlook.com. Thank you and enjoy. Hi there, it's Sue Grant Marshall, reading matters on radio today, 14.85 a.m. and also going out on DSTV 869. And we publish, or whatever you, we, we put up, <clears throat> um, podcasts of all these interviews. And Dustin Miller, who does this 9 to 12 slot on radio today, has a site which is... Miller Time Media, and if you go to that, you will see the podcasts of many, many of the interviews I've done over the years because Dustin has now, what he's been putting up more and more and more, (laughs) he told me yesterday that that he'd put up a heck of a lot more. Now, on the line, oh, this is going to be, how can I put it? Um... For sensitive viewers, you know what they always say on TV? (laughs) Sam Cowan, who has written a book, Brutal School Ties, subtitle, The Parktown Boys Tragedy. And it's Sam Cowan, the famous, famous Sam Cowan, who's been on 94.7 and 702. And my goodness, she's done so many amazing things. She's written at least two books. The first one was Finding Christopher, I think. Hello, welcome, Sam. Hello, Sue. Lovely to be here. Oh, gorgeous to hear your voice, Sam. And then you had From Whiskey to Water, which which was your very brave, honest and straightforward account of your addiction to alcohol. And I think uh, since that was published, which was what? I don't know, three or four years ago, Sam? I think it was 2015. Yes. And... So many people have read that and have been so gobsmacked by your honesty, uh, given your status, who you are and everything, that you just told it, you know. And and I think a lot of people who um, suffer from addictions and all kinds of things have taken great heart from that. And, And here you go again, Sam, so brave, writing this book, Brutal School Ties, which is about Parktown Boys High School and its tragedy, because it is a tragedy what happened. But the thing is, it's a tragedy that's gone back you know, to the 1980s, someone has suggested, for a variety of of reasons. Misguided loyalty, old boys stuff, how else can I put it? I know I'm sounding very kind of uh, cheeky. Um, Sam, you know, you, you start the book in your preface very powerfully. On the night of the 3rd of November 2016, police arrived at Parktown Boys High School in Johannesburg to arrest assistant water polo coach Colin Rex. Spelt unusually, the Colin, C-O-L-L-A-N, and Rex. He had been caught on CCTV camera footage fondling a 15-year-old from the boarding house. 
So, you know, and I'm emphasizing boarding house because this is what happened when the day uh, boys went home. Sam, um, so, so tell us uh, briefly what happened. Rex was charged with 327 offenses. So what, what um, won't you break down those offenses? So what happened was that... Um, he had come into the boarding house as what they call a junior master. And the junior masters live there, they, um, they live there free of charge, their food is paid for, and they can earn extra money, um, you know, studying, uh, helping the boys with prep, and um, also coaching, which is what he was doing. And so already at the beginning of that year, Marionette and Chris Bossett, who were the managers of the boarding house, had complained about him for being uh, touching the kids inappropriately. But when I say that, not sexually inappropriately, he was wrestling with them and sort of, um, sort of play choking them and things like that. And they had a real problem with it, and they were told it will be dealt with. Someone will talk to him. But already it would trigger that. So a lot of the charges were, there was some for attempted murder, um, but even the boys I spoke to said they never thought that he intended to kill them. It was all done in jest, um, and there was never any any you know, wanton desire to kill anyone. Yes. Um, and then there were 144 charges of which he pleaded guilty to of sexual assault, and that was that ranged from touching genitals to. Um, to uh, grabbing a, a, a buttock, to all sorts of things, sweeping nipples, etc. Uh, and then some of the other charges were dropped based on the fact that he pleaded guilty to so many. And then he was ultimately convicted of the um, sexual assault charges and also several for common assault, because that was what happened when he was choking the boys, some to the point where they passed out, um, others not. Yes. And then he he was 23 years old at the time, which was in 2016, and he was sentenced to 23 years in jail. And later on, um, we'll, we'll, go, uh, we'll go to the jail with you, Sam Cowan, and uh, find out your reactions. First of all, he was in Sin City, Sun City, and, and then he went to another jail. But I'm going to start with the um, the the uh, the yeah boy Ben, who um, he he was I think he was about what 15 or 16 at the time, and he had been what can I say hit on, fondled. He was the one who was who was choked um, so severely by Colin Rex in the shower mm. that he he passed out, didn't he, Sam? That's right. That's right. Um, then all the back. So there were some boys that weren't quite as um, that weren't quite as aggressive. Ben hated it, and he fought back every single time. And in fact, for his parents, I think the, the hardest time was when they were sitting in the courtroom and uh, the officer of the court started reading out the charges. And of those 150, uh, 144 charges, 57 related to their son. My goodness. And they had no idea. Oh, they kept hearing it. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And Sam, what I find fascinating about some of the boys, all all of them, by the way, you have given um, non, you you know, pseudonyms. So it's Ben instead of whatever, and Jonah, and so on and so forth. Obviously, because they've, you know, that was four or five years ago, and they've gone on 
to lead their own lives and, and who wants that trailing um, after them. So coming back to Ben, he 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 had he was really hutful um, of what was going on. He could see it around him. Nobody seemed to be um, seemed to be doing anything about it. And so I've turned to page ninety eight in your um, book, and you know you're writing here, Sam, that you know that you had visited the common room, which is where there were cameras, um, CCTV cameras. And, you know, most of the boys and everybody thought, well, this is for stealing, you know, that the, the cameras are up there. And Colin Ricks, the same. In fact, Ben said um, about Colin Ricks, because you say, why wasn't Colin, you know, aware of or nervous about this camera showing him a fondling, touching um, Jonah? Um, in his pri you know, on his private in or on or whatever, uh, private parts, mm -hmm. and and Ben says he he was too thick to realise what was going on. I had to laugh at that, uh, Sam. It's not a laughing matter, but yeah, you know. And then um, Ben's father, the parents that really supported their children, mothers. It seems to me from reading this book. Sam, a lot of the mothers got involved in the stuck up for their boys, questioned, got nowhere, went to the headmaster at the time, got nowhere. And and Ben's father not only took his son very seriously and listened to everything he said, but you have dubbed um, Ben's father the archivist, archivist, um, because he actually made notes from beginning to end of everything that was that was going on, which helped everybody in the end in this matter, uh, including you. So, um, Sam, I'm I'm not going to speak as much from now on in case you're getting nervous. But <laughs> what what I wanted to say is that Ben had a there was a meeting called with the boys and the parents, and 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 the boys wouldn't speak up. So. The parents were asked to leave, and Ben said uh, to the boys, and I'm quoting um, from your book, and, and Ben says, I know all of you, at least most of you, are uncomfortable with this and what's going on. Otherwise, I wouldn't, you know, in terms of the fondling, the sexual abuse, the near choking, you know, and the choking in many instances. Um, and then Ben says, well, I didn't actually want anyone to know. I'd have preferred everybody not knowing, but it had to come out. And then the parents came back into that meeting and everybody started telling their stories. And Ben came out with his story. Um, most of the people involved knew pretty quickly <laughs> from what Ben was saying that he had been the one who had told. And... Um, I'm just going to quickly say here, you know, he's a terrific guy, is this Ben. He um, he he always tried to help people. And afterwards, when you went and interviewed him, he'd left school. He was working on an oil rig in, in near Egypt. You used to Skype him. And, and this one um, young, well, you know, they're all about 12, 13, 14, up to 15, 16. And this one um, boy used to say, uh, to Ben, he was so scared of the dark. If he turned around, he thought Rex was going to be there. Oh my goodness! And and anyway, 
Ben says, you can, you can come and talk to me whenever you want. And he, Ben, kept on fighting because I just, you know, I, it, he didn't want to go back down to everyone else who was feeling pain. If I felt pain, this is Ben, I kept it to myself. I didn't want anyone to know. And I think a lot of it came out in other ways. So it didn't come out crying. It just came out in bursts of anger. This has been. If I started crying a little, it would quickly turn to anger and I'd end up punching cupboards, punching doors, just punching. And after that, it was just a bit of time before I started using drugs. And then Sam Cowan, you say, did they help? And Ben says, in the moment. That to me is so chilling. <laughs> Sam, won't you go back into how Ben organized that, uh, what can I say, the exposure of what was going on on that tape, that CCTV tape? So what had happened is that when the abuse started, when the sexual assault started, it started very insidiously. It was in the pool. And I think it is important to point out that Colin Rex had gone through this exact same initiation, these exact same things himself. So when they would start, they'd say something called no rules water polo, where you could grab anything you want, you could pull anything you want, you could give your mates a wedgie, you could pull their pants down, whatever you wanted to do. And that was no rules water polo. So at first, when it was just the water polo players, it, 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 for them it was normal when he moved into the boarding house, that's what happened. And he would always laugh about it. And the boys would also laugh because very little of this happened in private. A lot of it was out in the open. And uh, you mentioned the CCTV camera. I've been in that room. That thing sits in the corner of the room like a giant black eye. You know, it, 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 it's a proper security camera. It's not hidden in the room. It's uh, in the roof. It's big. Yes. Mm. And so what you'll see in the book, a lot of the boys would say, well, everyone was laughing. So I laughed too. But they weren't feeling that it was funny. And what happened on that water polo tour is that it went uh, a step further for Ben. So he, um, because, and I still think this is barbaric, boys are having to share a shower stall. Um, you know, they were sharing a shower stall himself and Colin. And he said Colin dumped shampoo on his hair and was touching him and grabbing him. And he said he kicked out. And Colin peed on him. And he peed back on Colin. And it was just, it was, it, it was a real act of war at that point. And he said he went back into the dormitory and there were other kids and Colin came in and threw him on the bed and was dry humping him. And he said when he looked around, no one was laughing. He said it wasn't funny and Colin wasn't laughing. And he realized at that point that no one else was laughing. And he said his first thought was, it's not just me. No one thinks it's funny. And he just wanted to stop. I mean, the boys are very adamant, um, all of them. They didn't want him to go to jail. They just wanted it to stop. And Ben thought the absolute most that would happen is that he'd be fired at the absolute most. Um, so when he got back, he knew there was that, that, that particular common area was where they all sort of flopped around during the day. You know, there was a little kitchen there and there was a big TV. Yes. Um, and, and so he said when they got back, he knew um, that, there would, that there would definitely be stuff happening in there. And the water polo caps had gone missing from the tour. And the then coach, the head coach, had told Ben to go and look for them. And Ben said that he went to Marielette and Chris Bossett and said that they had gone missing from the common room. But he said he knew they weren't there. He just knew that stuff had happened and he wanted them to see it. 
And so they were all sitting there, and I'm going to be Marionette. She's just an absolute, like, she's an angel. She's a she complete is. angel. Isn't she? And, and she, she, went, is. she, yeah. she really is. And she was cooking in the kitchen. And um, her husband was marking books. And uh, Ben made a noise. And they looked up, and it was happening on the TV, the molestation, the fondling. Um, the grabbing of genitals, and it was happening for hours and hours. With different boys all walking in and out. It was like it was so horribly, horribly, horribly normal. As though there was nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to, nothing to be embarrassed about. And they were horrified. And they said to him, "Go back to the dormitory, and you are not to tell anyone what you've seen here." And he said, "This is nothing. He does it to all of us all the time and more." Anyway, so from then. The whole thing escalated. You, you, you start the book, Sam. In fact, in the most incredibly powerful way, with a typical Joburg Joe afternoon thunderstorm. You know, I can almost see this in cinematic terms. And one of the boys, uh, I think he's one you've given the name Robert. He was one uh, of the ones that had also been subjected to this. And um, I can't quite remember, but. But a police van comes because Mariolette and her husband, who head of this boarding house and who completely, as you say, I mean, she was an angel, her husband too, so supportive of, of, of uh, you know, there's so many people who have played um, hero roles in, in your book and in, you know, obviously reflecting what actually happened. Sam, so then the police arrive in a van. One of the boys, uh, was, it, was it Robert, in fact, um, Sam, um, her, uh, his mother uh, had been called in to a meeting and, and, and he kept asking what his mother was doing there. Anyway, long and short of it is, um, she had been told what was going on. The police were called, and um, and Rex was, uh, you, you write this, Colin Rex was standing by the side of the police van, and the next thing, he's put in the van and driven off. Now, as someone myself who was a boarder, I mean, anything like that, it was drama of the highest order, but of course the whole the whole place was electrified. Um, you take it from there, Sam. What happened after that? So it was Jonah. Jonah's mum arrived, and she talks about driving through that thunderstorm, and she said she got from where they live, which is fairly far out, uh, to Parktown in 20 minutes, and I know where she lives, and that's a good 45-minute drive in any weather conditions. Yeah. And she said she made it in 20 minutes because they wouldn't tell her on the phone what was wrong. And she said on the way there, everything was going through her mind except what she eventually found out, which was that he had been um, sexually assaulted and that it was on CCTV footage. And she was worried it was drugs or he was going to be expelled or something to that effect. She said she just had no idea in her wildest dreams. And she arrived at the school and Colin, as you say, was put into the police van, driven away. They went to the police station to make a statement and to lay a charge. Um, and at that stage, I don't know what the school thought it was going to do. I knew they'd been alerted. But even at that point, it wasn't, it, it wasn't clean breath stuff, you know. And Colin himself was utterly confused when he was arrested. He knows what he did was wrong. Um, but I don't think he understood, and, or even now, understands the full enormity of it. And he was, and he never went back to school. Um, he, his girlfriend at the time was also a teacher there, and she saw the tape and she was absolutely broken by it. 
Um, and then started a process where, when I started this book, I thought, well, what a monster. And I would interview these incredible boys and tell their stories. But they've been so brave in the face of abuse from teachers, uh, being teased, being um, really being on the receiving end of a lot of horribleness, both from, both from um, boys, but mainly actually from staff and teachers who just were so angry that this had come out and yes. it hadn't been dealt with, yes. um, you know, secretly because they have that code of silence. Yes. Um, and, and, and so I thought, well, I'm going to highlight these boys. But actually, at the end of the book, there was no monster. There was just broken boys everywhere, yes. everywhere, yes. everywhere, everywhere, including Collins himself. Yes. And it's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, Radio Today, 1485 AM, also going out on DSTV channel 869. Sam, I want to get into this kind of background of, of, of silence. It's a culture. It's a, it's a cult of silence. And I'm sure as many... Um, Many people listening uh, to us will remember that Enoch Mpianzi M- uh, drowned um, at this beginning of the year, kind of new boys getting to know each other. I mean, just your descriptions of that. I'm not going to go too much into that, which was, you know, in a camp. Uh, I think the camp's since been shut down. Um, how there was just no supervision. This culture of silence, to me it's a cult, which someone somewhere, I think maybe it's Luke Lamprecht who, who um, was approached. He, he's a child development and protection consultant and, and works a lot in, in child abuse. And, and uh, yes, it's him. I found this uh, page now. He had heard about abuse at Parktown all the way back from about 2009 when Carte Blanche actually did a program on initiation where these boys are stripped naked, hit with bats, bruised, bleeding. Oh, you know, uh, it's it, it. And that, okay, take nine from 16, just continued for all those years. Quite extraordinary now at one stage um there was a suggestion that they the school was going to kind of make this all go away and luke lamprecht said no take it from there um sam so what happened was that i don't think the school had known how to deal with this i don't think any school knows how to deal with it but right from the grade eight camp these boys are told um you cry you die Stitches get stitches, uh, stitches, I beg your pardon, get stitches, and big boys don't cry. And it's what we teach our kids right from the beginning um, of their lives, especially boys, and that's the other thing, is that boys aren't allowed to have this happen to them. You know, I mean, if you think about it, when I remember when I was little and I actually wrote this in the book, my mum and I, my dad would travel a lot, and my dad would say to both my brothers, um, you know, look, you must look after mummy and Sam, and they were much younger than me. Um, and that's, so right from them, from then, the boy is the man of the house, the boy yeah. is the protector. Yes. So what happened What happened then is that this culture of silence, which everyone denies, um, it kind of crept in. Like that you, you know, you couldn't embarrass the school with a hundred years of, tra- of tradition. And I mean, it's got a magnificent history. It really does. Uh, it's got an absolutely magnificent history. And the problem is that in order to maintain that, they had to kind of hide the stuff. And that 
hiding. That is the irony of them hiding this stuff or destroying their own tradition. I mean, the first carte blanche investigation into the brutality of the initiations, I believe, was in 2009. And that was the O'Connor lift into the school. So he went through all of this. He went through all of the beatings, all of the knuckle push-ups, being made to do push-ups on... Um, on pencils with your feet up on a radiator. Oh. I mean, it, was, it was extraordinary. Yes. It was absolutely extraordinary. So from that perspective, um, when the school behaved the way it did, there was a talk that perhaps it could just all be made to go away. And Luke was very vocal about that and said, um, there's a law where, whereby if you know of a sexual assault or any kind of assault of a minor and you don't report it, you're an accessory after the fact. And it's a mandatory five-year jail term. And I think when he said that, Everyone realized that this was really serious. This wasn't someone who broke in a window or somebody who'd been caught taking drugs. This wasn't something you could hash up and get help for. You know, even the help they got for the boys was, was, was below par. Yes, yes. And Sam, um, uh, you know, just fast-forwarding, I mean, the, the way you've written this book, it is so... It makes for such compelling... Okay, it's awful reading, but... I, you know, I think everyone needs to read this book in order to understand, you know, to a lesser extent, this goes on in schools all over the country. And it's boys, it's girls, it's it's not just Parktown Boys High School. And, yeah. and, and, and this kind of initiation, uh, uh, this approach, this, it's brutal. And as you have said several times already, Colin Rex had exactly the same done to him. So what's new? What's different? Why shouldn't shouldn't he do it? Now, you didn't think that you would actually be able to get to interview Colin Rex, and you did. And, and, and tell us your first impression of meeting Colin. What did you expect to see, and what did you see? Well, going to prison is very weird if you've never been to prison before. Yes. Um, and... It was just, it was totally surreal, and um, the prisoners, uh, even a maximum security prison um, up near Chichatway, the prisoners there wear bright orange, bright green, and bright yellow based on what blocks they're in. So, it, it you know it's not as though you're going into some dark, dingy visiting room. It's a huge sort of lit, almost like a school hall, um, and there's benches, and so he looked great. He was clear-eyed. He um, he's fit. He, he was very polite. And I think he was, he, I think he, he was quite honest as well. Um, he, he was like a child. He was like a child. It was like talking to a child. I, I don't, it wasn't like talking to a 23-year-old at all. Gosh. At all. I mean, he'd been in for a year by then, just wow. every year. Yes. And I, I found myself looking at him and thinking, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how you got here. But I know what he did, and, and, and he needs to be in jail. And I made that clear to him. Yes. And I make it clear in the book. This is mm. not a revisionist thing where I say, you know, mm. he, he shouldn't have gone to jail. Mm. But I, I really, not all people who are abused are abusers, become mm. abusers, but a lot of people who are abusers have been abused. Yes, yes, yes. And he was, substantially, substantially. Yes, yes. And, you know, the way you write it, um, Sam Khan, is so... You know, it's not, I, th I, th I think um, the, the charm of your book, charm's the wrong, the strength of your book is, is the way you write. It is, it is not judgmental. The words, the boys, yeah. 
the teachers, the well, the lack of teachers, the headmasters, I think there were one or two uh, going through this time, all of them, you, you, you've told it in a very straightforward way. And so therefore, you know, speaking as the reader, you are making the calls and the judgments yourself. And, and I don't know whether you set out to do that, but that certainly is what comes through. It's a very, very fair approach. Sam, um, the book is published by, in case I forget and we end off this, it's published by NB Publishers. In print, the book is going to cost about, depending on where you buy it, 260, 260 rands. And digitally, it's going to cost you two. Zero, 08 depending again on 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 where you buy it sam do you have what can i say um i don't want to make you out to be a crusader or anything but do you have a hope that this book what do you hope that this book might do for others so you asked earlier when you you mentioned earlier you wanted to know if it was deliberate that i didn't judge the reason i wrote it in the words of the boys all the boys and the people who were there, the reason I conducted interviews, and literally a lot of it looks like a transcription, is because I did want people to make up their own minds. There was nothing black and white about this case at all. And I wanted people to read it from the perspective of everyone who was there. And, there's, and that's why I took an enormous amount of, of trouble to be caring and compassionate with the people I interviewed, no matter who they were or where they came from. Because what I really want to happen is we, this knee-jerk reaction, which is, oh, it's white male toxicity or, oh, it, you know, the school needs to be shut down. It is so much more complicated than either of those things. And the analogy I like to use is that of a big biscuit factory, where if you've made brilliant biscuits for 100 years, sometimes the machinery needs a tweak, you know, sometimes it needs a clean-up. That's such and a if you good don't analogy. Machine, yes. Yeah, no, if you don't clean the machinery out, the biscuits will start coming out not tasting as good or not looking as good. And that's when you have to pause and go, but I want my biscuits to be good. And so if it was a biscuit factory, it would be shut down and people would go through the machinery and replace and repair and probably run through another set of biscuits just to see how it went and you go forward. Whereas in the school, instead of fixing the machinery, they have seen, they've seen, and I say seen because nobody would talk to me from school. I applied with, I tried with headmasters, I tried with assistant headmasters, I tried with previous uh, teachers. Only one came uh, came on board, and that's because he's not in education anymore. Nobody would talk to me, so I had to work on assumption. And so what it seems to me is that the school is more concerned about people complaining about the biscuits than they are about fixing the machine. And that's the thing. No one is saying close the school down. And I make it very clear in the book. I'm not saying that. I don't think you should close the school down. It's got years of tradition. But when traditions are corrupted and become bad habits, that's when you've got to pause and say, how do we get back to what it is we used to do, which was grow brave, strong, sensitive men who understood morals and values of life so that they could go into the world and be examples for others. That's what it used to represent. And it could, again, but only if the, if the management of the school, school management team and the school governing body are prepared to actually sit down and go, right, let's close that part of the biscuit factory and fix it up. Yes, and Sam, that's what I was hoping you would say because it is so chilling as you get to the end of the book and and read what you have just said that 
You know, I mean, I wonder now, sitting here wondering what's going on in that school today. Has anything changed? Will people c continue? I wouldn't send uh, my son uh, to a school like that. I'm sorry to have to say that, Sam. It's judgmental. You're not judgmental. But I would no. not send my son to that school. I think the tragedy of what happened on the Great Earth Camp this year where Enoch and Pianzi died is that the matrix of that year were actually in a workshop at the time of the drowning. And the workshop was called It Stops With Me. And what they were doing is this was going to be the very first year where the matrix were going to say, this is what we're going to take from our great aid camp that was good and brave and true. And this is what we're going to discard that wasn't. And it was going to be a genuine orientation bonding camp. That was what they went in with the, with the intention of, I mean, I've spoken to a couple of the matrix boys, and that is how they went in. And so to have this drowning was so shocking for everyone, including them, um, because the first thing everybody thought was, it is initiation, and it wasn't. And that thing, if, 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 the, if the internal workings of the school are not going to change, it's going to tar all these boys with the same brush, and that's unfair. That's really, really unfair. So it's a question of saying, if the, if the, if the attitude of the children was at a point where they could say, right, this is what worked, this is what didn't, and hashtag it stops with me, then that's what needs to be highlighted and brought forward and respected and not hidden behind press statements and blanket um, governing body statements. A blanket statement says nothing except we're hiding. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Sam Cowan, uh, the, her book, Brutal School Ties, The Parktown Boys' Tragedy, um, published by MB um, Books, and it'll cost you, depending on where you buy it, 208 digitally or 260 it is i just hope everybody reads this book boys girls parents um teachers and heads of schools because the um yeah there are a couple of headmasters at parktown boys who I think maybe shouldn't have deserved the title of headmaster. But you have ended on a high note, Sam. The boys themselves were in the process of trying to begin turning around this dreadful cult of, um, you know, you, what's it, you snitch, you stitch, you know, whatever, um, to change that around. And, and this book will play a big role in that. Sam Cowan, dear Sam Cowan, thank you so much for chatting to me. And I wish you and Melinda Ferguson, who's the publisher of this book, all the luck in the world with it. Hi there, it's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, Radio Today, 14.85 a.m. And also going out on DSTV channel 869. So, in the time remaining, I'm going to try and talk about three or four books. Firstly, though, I'm going to tell you about exclusive books and celebrating South African writers the way they do every year in their home brew promotional uh, campaign. I did this a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned some of the books that they've got in this campaign that they're promoting in store and it runs until the end of July. So do go in if you can 
and um, have a look. And here are some more of the books that they have on this um, homebrew campaign. So there is um, Becoming Men, Black, Black Masculinities in a South African Township. And that is by Malosi Langer. And um, so I haven't read that book. It's published by Vitz Press. Then I interviewed Erna van Sale about her lovely, fascinating book, Bloodstone. So there is that one on the list. And then Jacob Lamini, who I've just interviewed, and his extraordinary book, The Terrorist Album. That is the most amazing book. And then <clears throat> it just says, M. Machau, um, you are not broke, you are pre-rich. Isn't that fantastic? And that's published by Penguin. What a stunning title, and I'm sure it's a riveting topic. And I'll end off with Karen Turnison, and she has written, it's a children's book, I've just received the book. I'll talk about it next week. And it says, I have brown skin and curly hair. So there you go. Homebrew, exclusive books, publishing our own South African authors. We're so proud of them. They're doing so well. And then I was sent news by Jonathan Ball Publishers about HarperCollins Publishers book, a new one about Harry, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and it's got a gorgeous cover when the news of the budding romance between a beloved English prince and an American actress broke it captured the world's attention, it sparked an international media frenzy but while the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have continued to make headlines, well, they did with their engagement, their wedding, the birth of their son, Archie, and then this totally unprecedented royal decision to step back from their royal lives, the author of this book um, says that few know the true story of Harry and Meghan. And... Um, so, the um, it's by journalists Omid Shkobi and Carolyn Durant. Harry and Meghan were originally living, this is when they left the royal family, the firm, at a waterfront mansion on Vancouver Island in Canada. Then they made a beeline for California after Canada announced it would be restricting its borders due to the coronavirus. So there they are in now in the tycoon Terry Tyler Perry T Y L E R Perry's mansion in Beverly Hills, and an insider who was interviewed for this book said that Meghan desperately wants to shatter the image she has of being a demanding diva who was rude to royal staffers and others on her quest for fame and power. The insider said that the book will help give Meghan and Harry a clean slate. Meghan seems to think that readers will finally understand the monumental anguish and the turmoil she has had to endure with a stiff upper lip. 
And Megan said, people need to see her vulnerable side, something this book does in great detail. The friend said, I think Megan wants people to feel sorry for her or at least have compassion for her and all she's been through, which has been anything but a fairy tale. So next month, August, that will go on sale, actually on the 11th of August, and it's handled locally by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Right, so now I'm going to go on to... Yes, well, Hilary Prendini Toffoli's book, Loves and Miracles of Pistola, which has been published by Penguin, has finally um, come out in print. It was digital, just digital before, and it's going to cost you, depending on where you buy it, about 280 rands. I did a full-length interview with her a short while ago, Loves and Miracles of Pistola. This book is garnering a lot of attention because it is, first of all, it is such fun. It's light. It talks so much about Italian cuisine. And um, Sally Andrew, you know, she writes the Tani Maria Mysteries, has given it a cover shout, which is, it really sums up the book, a rich Italian torta with layers of history, adventure and romance. And it certainly is a lot about Italian food. And it um, starts off with <laughs> two basic principles become as clear as consomme to Pistola, he's the central character obviously, one steamy afternoon during the long summer holidays of his last high school year. He's watching his grandfather slaughter two geese for Teresa Facinacani's, I hope I've got that right, wedding, when the first principle strikes him. It's the notion that happiness is rarely all about food. Now, this is a very, this book, Loves and Miracles of Pistola, is very much a Toffoli family um, affair because it's dedicated to Emilio, Hilary Prendini Toffoli's husband, because he inspired the book. He's uh, extremely Italian, born and raised there. And then this cover, this gorgeous, glorious cover, it is amazing. And the cover design is by Hilary and Emilio's daughter, Caterina Toffoli Metcalf. Well, there you go. And it is a handsome book. I'm holding it. It's chunky in my hands. And I think you're going to love it. A bit of light-hearted. It's got a bit of drama as well, apartheid, etc., etc. But I think you're going to absolutely love that. Published by Penguin. And then I wonder how many of you read the Sebastian, you know, I adore Sebastian Barry. He's the Irish writer. One of his books I most loved, he's written an enormous amount of plays, about 15 plays, if if not more, was The Secret Scripture. And if you haven't read The Secret Scripture, I suggest you get hold of it because it is fantastic. So that was about four or five books ago. Forget about his poetry and all his plays. And um, 
So Days Without End was about two soldiers in the Civil War in America, um, United States, where the order was given to kill all the um, American Indians. And now this is the sequel to it that I've got in front of me here, A Thousand Moons. And it is gorgeous. I bought it because I just so love Sebastian Barry's um, writing. And so it cost me 333 rands at exclusive books. Um, It'll be far less uh, digitally, of course. And so I don't know if I don't want to spoil the story for those of you who have not yet read Days Without End, which won all manner of prizes. Um, but this book is about we go back to Winona, who is a young Lakota orphan, and she is adopted by former soldiers Thomas McNulty and John. And they become her mother and her father. They're a gay couple. And um, how they survived in the army as a gay couple is extraordinary. For that, you must read Days Without End. So here we are, though. The um, A Thousand Moons, glorious cover. And um, someone riding a horse, or maybe it's a mule. Because Winona and John and Thomas McNulty ride mules because they're extremely poor living on this farm that they're working in Tennessee back in the 1870s. So now Winona, totally adored by these two ex-soldiers, is educated, she's loved, she forges a life for herself beyond the violence and the dispossession of her past because all her family was killed. When the order went out to kill all Native Americans, they were killed, her whole family. So she's very happy. She's about, how old is she when the, when the book starts? Anyhow, she's in, her, she's in her teens. She's about 14. And... Uh, The fragile harmony of... (laughs) It is an unlikely family unit, isn't it? Two men um, bringing her up, and especially, you know, back in those days, of course, not today. So in the aftermath of the Civil War, this lovely, happy life that she's leading on the farm, her happiness is soon threatened by a further traumatic event, one which Winona, because she's at the centre of this traumatic event struggles to confront, let alone understand. I absolutely adored this book. I didn't set out to adore it because you never know if you, you know, a sequel, if you're going to accept if it's um, obviously Sebastian Barry. And so what happens in the book, certainly at the beginning, is that Winona rides in on her on the mule the the farm mule into town um and something happens to her on the way back let's just say she arrives back at the farm in the most terrible state she's discovered by somebody she's back at the farm her clothes are ripped her hair is um, matted and 
at the farm. I love this character, Rosalie Bougereau, who works on the farm as well. And she takes um, poor Winona and physically puts her back together again. But, of course, emotionally, her soul and goodness knows what else are scarred. And, of course, her parents, (laughs) John and Thomas, absolutely furious and so are the other people who live on and work the farm and and they want revenge but Winona plans her own revenge she's a strong independent person and she gets the gun of one of the people who work on the farm and sets off on her own quest for vengeance and to find out what exactly happened to her because she can't remember what happened to her that she should arrive back at the family farm in such a dreadful uh, state. I really love this book. Please go and get it. A Thousand Moons. Beautiful cover. Beautiful book. And you will see throughout the book at the beginning of each chapter you'll see the moon is half full or a quarter full or full full as I say, handled, um, no, published by, what did I say? No, Faber and Faber, and I got it at Exclusive Books for 333 rands. Well, there you go. That's me for today. I have thoroughly enjoyed today's show and chatting to you, and I will catch you again next week. Cheers from Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, 